This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'd like to welcome Derek Penzler, who is a professor of Israel Studies at Oxford University and also a professor of Jewish history at the University of Toronto. Welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I want to ask you, uh, what are the features of a Jewish approach to economics and, uh, and how that differs from other approaches? But before I get to that, uh, I wanted to start with this idea of what do you think of pairing ethnicity with economics uh, and looking at the two together? Because that can be a controversial idea just starting off. It can be very controversial. No matter how you approach it, it, it is sensitive. The fact is that until the 1930s, 1940s, it was very common for scholars, including Jewish scholars who were really embedded in their communities, to write about the, uh, the relationship between the Jewish religion or Jewish nationality and Jewish economic behavior. Nothing wrong really was attributed to it. Anti-Semites were making outrageous comments about Jewish economic behavior or domination, but, but Jews considered it a completely acceptable thing to do. And then came the horrors of the 1930s, 40s, Nazism, the Holocaust. And in the wake of that, a lot of the language that had been used to talk about Jews as a kind of a, an ethnic unit and an economic unit was discredited. It was considered no longer appropriate to talk about Jews that way. Even by Jews? Even by Jews. And so Jewish scholarship, scholarship on the history of the Jews, tended to focus on anything but economics. Religion was okay. Politics was okay. Culture was okay. But economics was taboo. Very few people wrote on economics every, every now and then. And just in the last, I'd say, decade, decade and a half, we now see young scholars who are now, you know, two generations removed away from, from the Holocaust who are beginning to take the subject up, up again. And after all, you can't understand any kind of group behavior without, without economics. So enough time has passed, it would seem. I think enough time has passed, although there are people who still are um, nervous about it because of the way that anti-Semites have made use of economic arguments to demean the Jews. Well, let's get into what some of these characteristics or features of the Jewish approach are mm -hmm. and, and how they may differ from other cultures, other countries, other nations. Well, one thing I, I would say, there's, it, there's not some a monolithic thing called the Jewish economy that sort of marches across space and time. It's just that there seem to be certain forms of economic behavior or, or economic culture throughout much of the Jewish world that seem to repeat themselves in, in many different circumstances. And it's hard to know how far back to go, but certainly by the time we get into the later Middle Ages, up through early modern times, 20th century, the most important thing really is just one sentence, which is that Jews throughout most of history have not been peasants or aristocrats. Throughout most of human history, most people until recently were peasants. They worked the land. They often couldn't leave the land. And that doesn't encourage economic innovation. It doesn't encourage literacy. It doesn't encourage numeracy. It doesn't encourage entrepreneurship. And aristocrats are lords of the land. And they tend to be a warrior elite. And that also does not encourage innovation. So who innovates in a society? The middle classes, the townspeople, the bourgeois, or the burghers. Well, Jews have been for millennia primarily a people of townsmen. It might be a small town, it might be a large one. And they've worked in a mixture of crafts but also in, in commerce. When people are doing that generation after generation, 
they develop certain comparative advantages, whether it's literacy or numeracy. And let's not forget the fact that Jews are connected with each other across space. The Jew in one town in Poland has Jewish distant family from another part of Poland or from somewhere in Germany and so on. So, uh, but the Israeli economy, as you alluded to in your last answer, has changed a lot over the last 30 years, let's say, without going back centuries, just right. look at the last 30 years. And it's gone from largely a social, socialistic approach to the economy to a much more capitalistic approach. Can you talk about that change and how it came about, why it came about? Sure, and I can do it by actually bridging a little bit from, you know, the 16-1700s I was talking about a second ago into, into directly into your question, which is the Jewish world in Central Eastern Europe primarily was just overwhelmed by the possibility of revolution in the 19th century. Capitalist revolution, transformation of economic relations, but also socialism, communism, various movements on the left. And national movements, Zionism is after all a classic form of, of Jewish nationalism, were caught up with this idea of, of a revolutionary change in the Jewish people. So Zionism, when it realized itself in the state of Israel in 1948, was very strongly dominated by, I wouldn't say a, a socialist ideology as such, but one that had, had socialist elements where the state played a very major role in the development of the country, in the promotion of the nation. There was a lot of state-owned industry. There were severe limits on wages. So for example, wage differentials between workers and let's say physicians or professors in the early state of Israel were quite minimal. So there was this kind of egalitarian ethos, not socialism per se, but kind of social democracy. And that was one kind of Jewish, I would say, economy in that it was influenced by the very strong role Jews had played in the revolutionary movements in the early 20th century. But that was Israel of one era, 1950s, 60s. It already begins to loosen up in the 70s and the 80s. Israel becomes an industrial powerhouse, manufacturing uh, uh, textiles, medical technology. It's no longer making money selling oranges and, apple, oranges and grapefruit alone. There's a lot more to the Israeli economy. And then comes the great uh, privatization wave that begins in the 1980s and has really continued to our own day. State-owned industries are sold off um, and there's a kind of neoliberal economy where now Israel is one of the world centers really for uh, investment from abroad and of economic innovation. It's seen uh, as a, a world center for high-tech innovation in particular, but all kinds of innovation. Right. Um, and uh, I'm wondering uh, to what extent uh, the military in Israel has, has played a role in that development of high tech. How closely related are those two? They're very closely related. Now, they are in pretty much any country. So take aerospace and develops in California and you know, the United States from uh, World War II on. So clearly, high tech innovation in the United States, uh, the, the internet came after all out of the U.S. military. So that kind of connection is not unique to Israel. The difference is that the United States has this massive economy and is big as the military is in the U.S., there's an enormous consumer-driven, business-driven economy. Israel's a smaller country with a smaller economy, and the military is far more pervasive. So there's a lot more direct applications of military technology to the private sector. So it can be that some kind of programming that was developed, let's say, to help provide directional assistance to fighter aircraft might then become used in GPS um, for, for civilian automobiles, this sort of thing, the, the much more direct transfer of technology. So uh, over, over history, there's been other groups that have had um, prominent merchant classes that also uh, 
went to other parts of the world and established beachheads. I'm thinking of particularly the, the Chinese throughout Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. uh, where um, they are often some of the chief merchant classes in some of the big cities in Southeast Asia, even today, although they are a, a tiny percentage of the population. Right. Uh, and India is another example where uh, there's, there's been a lot of merchant activity, many, much of which has, uh, or some of which has gone overseas. So mm -hmm. there's a diaspora for, from India uh, right. of uh, business people. How do those groups, uh, how are they similar to what's happened in Israel and to Jews over the years, and how, are, how do they differ? Well, there's, there's two different ways of answering the question. One is that Jews, until really 1948, were almost like a, a periphery or a diaspora without a center. That is, spiritually, they had this notion of the land of Israel as their center, but that wasn't really their physical demographic home. So they were like a donut, as it were, but there's no center in the donut. And they dealt with each other throughout the Jewish world. So you've got that Jewish merchant in New York who's got the colleague or the relative in Cleveland and someone in Los Angeles. So there's a lot of horizontal integration. And something similar happened, of course, with, let's say, Indian merchants throughout um, much of Africa, throughout British Africa. The difference is that there was a homeland. There was a homeland, and although some of these Indian merchants never saw that homeland, some of them did. Uh, you know, you have Mohandas Gandhi, for example, who's, uh, in his case, an attorney from Gujarat in India, but then he winds up making his career partially in South Africa and then comes back to India. There is a center. There's a place to go back to. For Israel, for the state of Israel, that only happens in 1948. Then you have a state. But until really the 1970s, you don't have lots and lots of Israelis living abroad as you do now. Now there's an Israeli diaspora of, who knows, half a million, as many as a million, living in the United States. They have very close ties, including economic ties with the state of Israel. So I'd say now the Israeli diaspora relates to Israel economically the way that the Indian diaspora or the Chinese diaspora of the past may have dealt with their homelands. So it's become more similar since It's since becoming more 48. similar because Israel's a normal state in that mm -hmm. sense, and the Israeli diaspora is a normal diaspora. Uh, Israel, as, as I mentioned, is well known for being innovative, for being innovative in high tech in particular. Are, are there attributes of the Israeli economy related to that that can be uh, adopted or adapted by other countries that see that success and, and you know, just as they would look at Silicon Valley and say, how can we develop something right. like that in our country? Well, theoretically, yes, but it might be difficult because there are national cultures, there are ways of behaving. And if you look at Israel and the way, for example, the high-tech sector works in Israel, there's tremendous informality. There are authority structures, but they're very loose, and you can challenge authority, you can challenge your boss, and things uh, are, are much less well-organized. There's a lot more improvisation. So the question is whether these corporate cultures in other parts of the world are frankly willing to loosen up uh, the way that Israel has. Uh, Israelis also, they bring into the project a, a lot of intellectual independence, um, and one has to be willing to listen to a lot of that. And, and it, so it has to be much more of a group sort of decision-making process than an individualistic one. Uh, what I don't know, if it can be translated as easily, is the sense Israelis have of a very strong solidarity, which keeps them united despite the often lack of, the, the, the lack of strong authority structures. Israel has a sense of common threat, whether it's real or perceived is not the issue, there's that sense, and uh, there's a sense of sort of Jewish solidarity. Whether one can replicate that in other parts of the world, I'm not sure, but the actual chain of command 
the way decisions are taken on a daily basis, the way brainstorming takes place, yes, of course, one could try to replicate that. Uh, one last question. Any idea what the next iteration of the Israeli economy might look like? Are you seeing anything today that's moving on, that's, that's a departure from what we tend to think about or, or think we know about the Israeli economy today? Well, one thing's for sure. Uh, Israel shows every sign of continuing to be uh, a world leader in many aspects of, uh, of high tech. But it's, it's not just that. And the fact is Israel does have competition. I mean, it's not just the United States and Canada. There's the European Union. And I mean, Israel is not alone in this. And there is a concern in Israel that uh, inadequate government funding, uh, if the startup funding, for example, the investment funding that comes from venture capital, uh, capitalists all over the world, if this were to dry up, then the Israeli startup economy would dry up. So Israel in some ways is very vulnerable. What I think might begin to happen is that Israel will become not only a leader in the development of new technologies, but the adaption of existing ones. The exist uh, for example, desalination which 30 years ago was considered outrageously expensive and simply impracticable. But Israel is now uh, adopting desalination that I think is providing up to 70% of the country's drinking water. The country will actually have a water surplus in a few years. This would have been absolutely unheard of. They're using technology, which is in part homegrown. A lot of it's come from, from elsewhere. So Israel's innovation isn't simply that they're developing things at home. It's also what they make use of comes from what comes from the outside. So a second last question, sure. which is, um, what haven't I asked you that would be interesting for viewers to understand about the Israeli economy? I think what would be really interesting to understand, I guess, two things. One is similarities and differences between the Israeli economy and its Jewishness, however we can define that, and American Jews, because American Jews, by and large, are it's a very successful ethnic religious minority, uh, but it does not display as an aggregate it seems, the same kind of thirst for innovation that one finds in the state of Israel. American Jews are by and large a comfortable and successful minority, and if anything, the innovative aspects of that community are being bled away by success. You know, 50, 60 years ago, American Jews, the first generations to go to university, they worked very hard, they had to be innovative to, to make it in the world. Whereas now they're more comfortable and they can trod in you know, well-established paths in business and the professions. Whereas in Israel, there still is this, still is this kind of thirst to, to succeed. And the other thing I would sort of want to mention, gets back to where we started, is, is it even appropriate to ask these questions about the Jewishness of an Israeli economy? So um, I would just say that in other parts of the world, in China and in India, there's much less embarrassment about talking about the relationship between culture and economics. Scholars of Indian studies simply do this all the time. What they're careful about, and I would finish with this. There's a difference between saying that there can be a cultural influence behind economic behavior and some sort of determinant, that people, because they belong to a certain ethnic community or identify with it, that they are automatically blessed or cursed or, you know, predetermined to succeed or to fail economically. There's enormous parameters, enormous spectrum of possibilities. This is not an issue of race. This is not an issue of uh, genetics. This is an issue of culture. Culture is fluid and organic and all we're talking about is a field of possibilities, which in the case of Israel, they've managed to realize. Thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.